Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Hi, my name is Larry Haber, and I am pleased to welcome you to an NYU Abu Dhabi Institute-sponsored uh, webinar entitled Improving Education for Refugee Children. And the uh, emphasis of this webinar is on insights from rigorous research. I'm delighted to be joined by my two colleagues, Dr. Hayan Kim and Dr. Lindsey Brown, who are exceptional young researchers at NYU Ties, and they will be presenting much of our uh, work uh, to you today. The research, uh, if you could go to the next slide, the research today is part of a program of research conducted by a research center that spans NYU New York and NYU Abu Dhabi. It is called Global Ties for Children, and Ties stands for the purpose to which we do the research. We wish to help governments and NGOs and communities transform the interventions that they implement for children in low-income and conflict-affected countries to improve their effectiveness and their scale uh, at, at, at improving children's holistic outcomes. Right, next. Our work historically has focused on two stages of childhood, early childhood, zero to five, and middle childhood, roughly six to 11 or 12. We're increasingly doing work in adolescence as well. And we always ask uh, four questions. These are the questions that motivate our work. Uh, what works to improve children's holistic learning outcomes? How does it work? Uh, for whom, under what conditions, and at what cost? Next slide. Uh, we do this work in uh, uh, currently four regions of the world. Uh, our primary focus when we began in 2014 was in the Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, but we've continued to build work in Latin America and in Asia. Next. And all this work can't be done alone. They involve very important and very complex strategic partnerships between funders, governments, non-governmental organizations, local communities, and research centers like NYU Ties. All of the examples that Hayan and Lindsay will be presenting today come from a 10-year partnership we've had with the International Rescue Committee. And we focused over those 10 years in work in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Niger, and Sierra Leone in, in Africa, and Lebanon in the Middle East. And I will return to uh, make a few comments about the importance of strategic partnerships at the end of our presentation. So uh, this is the plans for the next 45 minutes. Uh, Lindsey Brown is going to begin by summarizing some of the current conditions facing refugee children that seem especially important to us. Then Hayan Kim will focus on work we've been doing to try to improve 
the instructional quality in classrooms of, of programs for children uh, in conflict-affected situations by infusing social-emotional learning principles into those programs. Lindsey Brown will then uh, say that if the kids don't attend, they don't get as big an impact. Then we'll cover the critical role of attendance. Then we'll return to Taeyeon Kim to describe work we've been doing to try to fill some of the gaps in our early work where we weren't uh, discovering what we hoped we would. And finally, I'll have a few comments on strategic partnerships, as we said. If we're good and we finish that all in 40 minutes, we'll have plenty of time for discussion. So with no further uh, delays, let me turn things over to my colleague, Lindsay. Lindsay, take it away. Thanks. I just wanted to um, pause for a minute and see if our colleagues from Abu Dhabi wanted to say anything. I think what they wanted to say was in the greetings. It's in the chat. Okay, great. So um, we wanted to take just a minute and uh, talk about the conditions in the areas in which we work and, and in which our on-the-ground partners work. So this talk is going to focus primarily on our partnership with the International Rescue Committee, which, as many of you know, is an organization for emergency relief. Um, and it works primarily in places of conflict and crisis. So that's where we're going to focus uh, talking about these conditions. As all of us know, we are facing unprecedented times, so this work is more important now than it's ever been. The global pandemic aside, there are now nearly 80 million refugees and displaced people around the world. More than three quarters of refugees are replaced for more are displaced rather for more than five years. So it's really a, a much more stable and sort of chronic condition than a lot of people realize. And four out of every five refugees or internally displaced people live in developing countries. So these host communities are often dealing with their own pre-existing social, political, economic challenges prior to the arrival of refugees or replaced or displaced people. This is also figures prior to the pandemic. Drilling down to school-aged kids in those places, 260 million school-aged children are out of school, 35% of whom live in conflict-affected contexts. And even when students are in school, of course, there are many challenges to them learning. And we're going to talk more about what some of those challenges are in a little bit. But we know that education for vulnerable children is especially important, and it can provide a sense of normalcy and structure. And when it's done well, it can have really high returns, both for learning and for later life outcomes. Over a billion students have experienced school disruption in 2020, mostly from the effects of COVID-19. And we don't know yet exactly what the amount of learning loss will be or how this will affect children. But what we do know from prior research is that prolonged closures tend to have disproportionately negative impacts on the most vulnerable students. And this is for a lot of reasons, some of which are there's fewer opportunities for those students to learn at home on average. 
Uh, it has cascading effects to their parents who no longer have places to send their kids, uh, creates complications for their work. Um, lack of services, access through schools such as meals or counselors, and extended school closures can cause not just a loss of learning, which is sort of the most proximate outcome, but also, you know, the, the long-term goals of schooling in terms of development of human capital can also be disrupted. And this is especially important because in conflict and crisis contexts, children are exposed to a number of environmental risks like violence, instability, and other things in their harsh environments. And extended exposure to risks can overwhelm a child's ability to cope. And that can lead to a toxic stress, which can cause physiological uh, disruption in, in healthy brain development and can prevent children from reaching their full potential. Um, and this can happen both in academic learning as well as other kinds of well-being, such as pro-social behavior, like learning how to get along with others, and also knowing how and when to regulate their emotions. And this is really um, the chain that we're working with the IRC to try to disrupt. So we're focusing on program and policy interventions. In this talk, we're focusing specifically on Healing Classrooms, which is a curriculum that was developed by the International Rescue Committee specifically for children in conflict and crisis areas to ensure that children can reach their potential and particularly, uh, again, focusing on academic and social-emotional outcomes uh, in this talk. And so with that, Hayan is going to uh, take over and talk about um, what evidence we've generated so far with Healing Classrooms. Thank you, Lindsay, for the introduction. And thank you, everyone, for coming to our talk today. Like Lindsay said, we are now going to talk about uh, what we can do to support the refugee education undergoing adversity and toxic stress with examples from our research in Democratic Republic of Congo, Lebanon, and Niger. Just a little bit of background. Uh, recently, UNHCR released a new strategy for refugee inclusion titled Refugee Education 2030. This document is an update of their 2012 to 2016 global education strategy. And here they emphasize that education for displaced children and youth and their host communities requires collective global responsibility. To do so, they call for integration of refugee children in national education systems and providing safe, enabling environment for all students, for both refugee and host community children. As a strategy to achieve these goals, it emphasized the role of global community and stakeholders to support host community, host country governments to provide high quality education and ease the pressure on host country government through sustainable partnership with global stakeholders. Given this responsibility as a part of a global community, we need to think about what is the best way to support refugee children in national education systems for the universities like NIU and in partnership with NGOs and funders and other stakeholders. 
what can we do and what role can we play to improve quality and access to education for refugee children with accountability and effectiveness? We present two solutions addressing this question in the following section uh, with the evidence from the work that we have done through strategic research per practitioner partnership between NIU ties and IRC. The first solution that we propose is to improve access to and quality of education in support of local host country governments. We can do so by providing innovative and high quality academic curriculum and teacher training. This can be done both in support of the existing formal school system, the refugee and the host community children attend, and also it can be done in complementary provision of informal education services that help children to learn better and stay longer, longer in national education systems. The second solution is to provide social emotional support for the students, uh, but it can be done by embedding social emotional support strategies within the education. Uh, that can be an effective solution to ensure education services to provide safe and enabling environment for refugee and host community children facing many adversities in crisis affected contexts and promote holistic learning. There are many innovative programs and work going on in the field that address these issues, but so far very little research has been done in these areas. As university researchers, we believe our contribution and responsibility is to generate evidence of what works and how to make it better. One promising solution our practitioner partner IRC brought to the table is providing academic curriculum that is infused with SEL principles designed to provide safe and enabling environment for learning. The innovation of this program is to infuse five SEL principles to the classroom instructional practices, not only to provide academic support, but also to provide safe and supportive environment. This program is called Healing Classroom, and it, in addition to the curriculum, it provides teacher training, peer learning uh, communities called teacher learning circles, and coaching support. This program has been tested in a few different countries uh, via different delivery platforms. The first model is to provide this SEL-infused program directly to the public schools. This model has been implemented in Congo and Sierra Leone. The goal of this program, this model, is to support holistic learning within the national education systems for all children, including both refugees, IDPs, and host community children. And it is typically uh, delivered by public school teachers within the regular school days. Uh, and this approach is focused on improving the formal education itself. The first place this model has been tested was Congo uh, in the first ever large scale evaluation study conducted by partnership between IRC and NYU ties. The results are promising. We found that healing classroom can improve students' academic skills for both reading and math. We also found this program improved children's sense of safety and supportiveness of their schools. But it did not improve children's and teachers' mental health and well-being. And most of these effects disappear once the program is expanded and followed up in the later years. 
The second model is to provide SEL-infused program as an NGO-run non-formal remedial programming provided outside of the formal schooling systems in days. This is to support children's holistic learning in non-formal remedial education for students to succeed in national education systems. Uh, we, there are some variations in who delivered it, uh, to whom, to what level of coordination with the Ministry of Education, the host community government have happened uh, differed by the country that we implemented. We are focusing on the Lebanon and Israel here. In testing this model in Lebanon, we also found similar promising findings. We found that healing classroom can improve some of the children's reading and math skills, but not all. We also found that access to this informal remedial education program improved children's perceptions of public school climate, including sense of safety and supportiveness of the schools. And interestingly, we also found significant impact on behavior regulation, but other than that, uh, there was no impact on social emotional learning or mental health we found from this program. In Niger, we similarly found that a healing classroom significantly improved children's literacy skills and numeracy skills like DRC and Lebanon. But we also found that healing classroom did not improve uh, their school grades in public schools. We also confirmed these findings were not different across gender, refugee status, and academic skill levels of the child. With evidence from these three countries, what do we know about healing classrooms? First, we have evidence that this SEL education program can improve academic outcomes and students' perception of safety and supportiveness in schools. And this is consistent across three countries and two different delivery models, including formal education settings in public schools in DRC and NGO-run informal education programs in Lebanon and Niger. However, we also found that healing classroom does not work to improve teachers and students' well-being, nor the social emotional skills that we hope to improve as a part of this program. Based on this learning, we now turn to ways to understand and improve the programs for children in the crisis context. First, by focusing on improving attendance, uh, and second, by improving targeted programs for improving social emotional learning. Now we turn to Dr. Lindsay Brown, who will discuss issues around the attendance. Thanks, Hayan. Uh, so now that we've learned a little bit about how the program works, uh, I want to turn to talking about attendance to the program itself, because it turns out it's not quite as simple as if you build it, they will come. So what have we learned about attendance? What we know is that in conflict-affected contexts, there are a lot of factors that can impede student attendance. There's high levels of mobility within the population. A lot of times they live in, in areas with harsh weather. Um, there can be school closures due to things like strikes or elections. And oftentimes there's unsafe security conditions uh, to and from school. And all of these can contribute to reasons why students don't come to school. And 
what we know, of course, about attendance is that it's related to the amount of curriculum that uh, that that students get exposed to. Um, and it's also related to the consistency and quantity of the the practice opportunities that they have to to practice the skills and processes and strategies within that curriculum. And also just how much students come to school can affect the stability of the classroom environment beyond the student uh, um, himself sort of uh, among the peers. And at the very least, it's a necessary precondition for academic learning. Yet, what we've found in, in the programs, this is empirical data, is that the average attendance ranges across countries from 40% in Lebanon, which was a com community-based program that was happening outside of the public school system, to 60 and 64% uh, in Sierra Leone and Niger. Those were happening either within or alongside the public school system. And so... On average, students are receiving about half of the curriculum that, that was designed really thoughtfully and sequentially by the International Rescue Committee. Again, this is empirical evidence from our uh, this from the program in Niger, and what we found is that even at lower than desirable attendance. Um, the effect sizes of academic learning are small at about 0.2 in reading to moderate at about 0.3 in math, which is comparable with um, other sorts of programs in the area. And yet what we know is that if 100%, uh, if students attended 100% of the time, we would double the amount of learning that students, uh, that students did in, that, in the same amount of time with the same curriculum. And the reason why we're particularly interested, again, in focusing in on attendance is that it's a fairly actionable target. So thinking about, you know, things that may impede student learning, attendance is something where we have a fair amount of low or no cost options. So one of the things that we've seen either in the literature or in our own work is that dropping the requirement of school uniforms is one way to get students to attend more often. Having volunteer community groups monitor students' attendance and, and uh, go out into the community and raise awareness in the IRC, that tends to be mothers' groups, but um, there's no you know, gender necessity to that. Um, ensuring that there are safe routes for students to get to and from school having incentives for student attendance. And this can be in the younger grades as easy as having students put a sticker on a calendar each time they come into class. That's been shown to improve attendance. And also having benefits through the school itself, such as school feeding programs. All of these things are low or no cost options to increase attendance and ultimately learning. And we actually know surprisingly little about attendance in these in the sort of context where we work. And that might be surprising because attendance is sort of ubiquitous in, in more developed uh, areas. But really the focus has historically been on access in these in, in low uh, resourced contexts. So is there a school that students can access that's you know a reasonable distance away with low or no fees, that sort of thing? 
And attendance is surprisingly challenging to measure. I'm going to talk about our attempts to do so in just a second. And programs can face well or unintended incentives for turnover. So one of the things that programs generally report on is the number of beneficiaries in the program. There's always limited resources. And so usually when a student drops out or stops coming consistently, you can replace that student with someone new. And then the number of beneficiaries increases, which is often a donor metric that programs use. And so this actually uh, incentivizes in some way this sort of churn um, that uh, is not as good for actual student learning outcomes. I just want to focus in uh, for a minute on on attendance being challenging to measure because it feels like, oh, this is very discreet. It should be really easy. So I want to talk for a minute about when we wanted to get daily student attendance from Sierra Leone. This teachers already take uh, attendance in a booklet that looks like this. Um, this is an actual picture from the attendance booklet. They take attendance twice a day. A downstroke means the student was there in the morning and upstroke means they were there in the afternoon. Zeros mean they were absent. But the data is not entered anywhere electronically and it's not aggregated in any way and the blue books are not allowed to leave the school. So um, we didn't, we uh, tried various methods for getting um, more um, for getting uh, more efficient uh, at, the, at collecting the data. But ultimately we decided that we were going to just take pictures of this attendance that already existed in the environment. And this ended up being, um, this is one of the pictures that, that we received. Uh, this is another picture that we received. And uh, so part of the challenge was getting legible data and then even when it was legible, oftentimes it was separated from the names uh, themselves or it wasn't filled out with the dates at the top. And so we ended up creating a really intricate tracker for each school in each classroom at the end of each month was the data uploaded, was it legible and continuously feeding back to our partners on the ground, please re-upload this. And it was incredibly time consuming both for on our end and also on our partner's end in order to try to get this attendance even prior to when we actually digitized the information itself. So what can we do moving forward? We have invested some resources along with our partners in trying to get real-time electronic reporting of attendance. Um, that has been happening on the ground, um, primarily in Lebanon. Invest in school data systems so that uh, this data is aggregated and, and used so that it can be used in real time to monitor uh, progress. Improve donor metrics to, to not incentivize churn in, in programs. And investigate barriers and promoters of attendance because these are likely to be context specific and to change uh, depending on the environment. And again, uh, what we know just to drive home this point is that if students were to go 100% of the time, they would have twice the amount of learning. And that's really why we're, we're so interested in attendance. And now Hayan is going to talk a little bit about our experience iterating on and collecting evidence of skill-targeted SEL strategies. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, like Lindsay discussed, improving attendance is really the key to improving the program uh, effectiveness in general. 
another way to improve the education program for refugee children is to provide programs uh, directly targeting social and emotional learning for children. In this section, I'm going to talk about the potential solutions and focusing on the evidence that we found from NIU ties and IRC's uh, strategic partnership work in Lebanon. So the rationale behind why we are targeting SEL uh, could be helpful for improving refugee education largely stems from the robust evidence that exists in the Western research, uh, suggesting that social emotional learning is critical for children's learning and well-being. The social emotional learning can, uh, could be even more important for the children who are going through the adversities that affects the range of social and emotional and cognitive development in conflict affected settings. However, uh, the trial of the IRC's healing classroom programs, integrating the classroom level SEL principles and practices into teacher training and curriculum didn't show improvement in children's social emotional learning. So IRC and NYU ties tested if adding a program or programs that directly target the social emotional skills can bolster the effect of the healing classroom on children's social emotional learning skills and mental health. So we categorized the SEL programs broadly into three types. The first type we uh, discuss is the uh, classroom SEL, which we already talked about. So this is an approach to integrate the classroom level uh, SEL practices into the instruction itself. This type of program uh, focuses on providing safe and supportive classroom environment and does not necessarily directly target the building's specific SEL skills. The Healing Classroom is a good example of this, and we already uh, shared the findings from that program. In this section, we will be focusing on two other types that can be added onto the classroom SEL, like Healing Classroom. So the first is skill-targeted SEL activities. These are uh, usually consisting of short activities and games to target specific SEL skills, for example, uh, cognitive skills and so on, and possibly can be delivered within a normal school days between subject transition time. For our research, we focused on uh, testing mindfulness and brain games activities. Secondly, we also have a skill-targeted SEL curriculum, uh, which is different from skill-targeted activities in that it consists of planned sequence of standalone lessons incorporating multiple different types of method and instructions to build specific SEL skills and targets. Uh, we also tested such a program called Five Component SEL delivered by IRC in Lebanon. So first, uh, the skill-targeted SEL activities in Lebanon, uh, we tested this in 2016 and 2017. Um, IRC pre pre implemented two types of uh, skill-targeted social emotional learning activities called mindfulness and brain games, in addition to the healing classrooms program that you see on the left. The mindfulness targets to improve children's stress and emotional regulation skills through breathing and mind-body down regulation activities. And the other program, Brain Games, 
targets to improve children's executive function skills, for example, attention, working memory, and inhibition, uh, which are the critical cognitive functions that's necessary for learning. Both of these activities uh, were implemented for uh, three times uh, a day, uh, which each of the, those were 10-minute sessions, and three days a week for 16 weeks each for each of the programs, while the Healing Classroom program has, was in session. The NIU ties and IRC conducted the rigorous evaluation of these skill-targeted SEL activities in Lebanon with hopes to improve children's social emotional learning uh, skills uh, that these programs target. Disappointingly, however, we found no robust evidence of impacts either of the mindfulness nor of the brain games alone by the rigorous statistical standards. What we found, however, is some promising and some worrisome signs that we can use to improve the programming itself. So specifically, uh, we found that the, some positive signals that uh, indicates mindfulness and brain games have potential to improve children's social emotional learning skills in a positive direction for two outcomes, including decreasing aggression and helping students to regulate, better regulate their emotions. We also found some negative signals that mindfulness and brain games have potential to affect children's outcomes maybe in negative ways, such as increasing children's stress levels, uh, self-reported stress levels about the school-related issues. Um, so based on these findings, the next year, 2017 to 18, um, ISC and IEO uh, partnership decided to test out a different type of of SEL program as the skill-targeted SEL curriculum. So the program on the right side, uh, oops, sorry, um, right side, it targets five different components of SEL skills, including brain building, emotional regulation, positive social skills, conflict resolution, and perseverance in explicit lessons about SEL. It was implemented uh, 30 minutes lessons each day for three days a week for 24 weeks. So the findings are a little disappointing. Again, we found overall no robust evidence of impacts of five component SEL. We still found, however, some, again, uh, promising and worrisome signs that we can use to improve the programming. Specifically, we found some positive signals that five-component SEL have potential to improve children's SEL skills in a positive direction for multiple outcomes, including improving emotional knowledge and also teacher perceptions of positive academic and social behaviors of their children. We also found some negative signals, including uh, the five-component uh, program may increase children's report and awareness of their ne negative emotions. These indications are not robust enough to say, uh, give us a conclusive evidence to say uh, the five-component program or the mindfulness or brain games had positive or negative impacts, 
but this uh, information um, gives us the directions for program revision and improvement. Overall, the conclusion from the evaluation of the skill-targeted SEL programs is that the moving the SEL needle is really hard in this context, and we don't really know yet how to do that effectively just yet. And yes, this is quite disheartening. However, the, uh, this also provides a reason uh, to continue innovating and improving and building evidence base for SEL programming crisis context. It just shows us that it really takes a lot of courage and perseverance and investment to innovate and improve the programs and conduct research to learn how to improve the refugee education. And the research so far also provides a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of information and promising signals that we can use to revise and improve the programs uh, and also implementation and better understand the child development and bring new innovation to the programs. Based on the, the learning from these uh, research that we have done so far, we are working on a few next steps. These includes for research, uh, working on collective development of measures in context, also better understanding child development in context and understanding and improving program implementation and heterogeneity in context. For programming and partnerships, we are continuing to working on identifying and developing innovative programs that can improve children's mental health and SEL skills. We are also collaborating with host community governments to develop framework and tools for better monitoring and evaluation of the social emotional learning and academic learning. And lastly, we are uh, trying to moving away from the model of capacity building, we are investing in building new model of capacity exchange for the partnerships. Now I turn to Larry for discussion on the role of the partnerships. Larry? I was muted. Thank you, Hayan. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Haiyan and Lindsay, uh, uh, for really rich presentations. We know, colleagues, we've taxed you with a lot of information, and we are uh, monitoring the, the Q&A. And so please continue with Q&A, and we'll have a chance to clarify some of your questions. Uh, but before we end, I just wanted to step back for a few minutes. Uh, Haiyan and Lindsay have been right in the depths of the research about what we're learning about what works. And I want to take a, a, a moment and, and, and zoom back out to the process by which all this happens. Uh, everything that Hayan and Lindsay described could not have been accomplished by INGOs alone, universities alone, without support from governors, governments and involvement, without funders, and most especially without the local communities. So these are very complex uh, research enterprises, they're research action enterprises. And, uh, and it's worth thinking about uh, what are the assets and the benefits that come from them. Next slide, Hayan, uh, please. So um, from my point of view, and I think our collective point of view at TIES, 
but maybe not the world's. <laughs> there are unique assets that universities bring to such strategic partnerships. It's not obvious uh, to all of you that an enormous amount of the work that IRC draws on to inform the design of their programs and that we draw on to inform the rigorous evaluation of their programs involve uh, advances in social, behavioral, developmental, educational prevention and improvement sciences. Uh, universities are in direct uh, access to and develop these kinds of scientific advances. And it's a potential asset if it's used well and respectively and truly reciprocally. It's a potential tool to improve the uh, functioning of government and NGOs. Um, it's, it's also, as Haiyan mentioned, it takes courage to do so. So we'd like to publicly thank the International Rescue Committee for their commitment to evidence-based practice. They have been on a 25-year mission, especially uh, acute in the last 10 years, to try to move humanitarian relief and development aid to an evidence-based approach. We believe that the role of universities in helping to do that through accessing science uh, tools and concepts is one unique asset of the university. The second enormous unique asset, uh, asset of the university is mo mobilization of the human capital of the university students. University students have the capacity to make contributions that we're only beginning to explore in all this work. Certainly doctoral and postdoctoral fellows do it, but uh, masters and undergraduate students can do it. And there's great interest in places like NYU Abu Dhabi and NYU New York among undergraduates and being engaged in this kind of work. Uh, next slide. Um, but it, we not only uh, uh, bring assets that may benefit strategic partnerships, but we also benefit, universities benefit from these kinds of partnerships. Uh, universities have the ability to contribute directly and powerfully to the advancement of sustainable development goals in multiple areas, whether it's poverty, health, in our case, education, sustainable development goal four. The ability for universities to actually make contributions to societal development, I think, is tangible in this work. Uh, additionally, um, uh, this kind of work is eye-opening to students uh, about the complexity of real-world problem-solving that will undertake them uh, if, if they go into these kinds of uh, work careers uh, in, the, in the future. So opportunities to better prepare students for that is a, a great benefit of having students be involved and universities being involved. All this leads to opening pathways for evidence-based policies and practices. Kids don't deserve us guessing what might work for them. Kids deserve us knowing as well as we can and disciplining ourselves to be able to make that uh, uh, commitment to the iterative continuous improvement that IRC has been championing that we're trying to assist and that there are other wonderful examples of this going on around the world. So that's great. In my final moments, I want to do two other things. First, next slide, is to get concrete, not abstract about this. It takes all sectors to do, of strategic partnerships to do this. 
we've already heard about how critical uh, our partnership is with the International Rescue Committee, both in their central offices, uh, their headquarters, which is actually a globally dispersed headquarters even <laughs> before the pandemic, and in their country uh, teams. And so uh, the, the it's impossible to, to name all the education directors, research directors, program coordinators, uh, research officers, data collectors in the teams. This work could not be done without that. Um, there have been a, a, a number of funders funding this kind of research practice partnership work. We especially are grateful to Dubai Cares, who has taken a real leadership role in that. But there are other funders, too, that are uh, seeing the value of this kind of work and that have supported our work, and we thank them. Uh, collaborations with uh, colleagues at other universities have been useful in, in accessing some of that high science that we've been talking about. And then besides Haiyan, Lindsay, and I, uh, there are many other uh, uh, NYU colleagues who work on uh, the school-age children's work. I haven't mentioned at all that uh, IRC and NYU collaborate on early childhood work too, led by my colleague Hiro Yoshikawa, who co-directs the center and many talented people there. Finally, the children, parents, teachers, and ministry officials on the ground in the countries are uh, generous with their time, open to be uh, understood, and, uh, and, and, and it's critical. Finally, uh, we would like to thank the NYU Abu Dhabi uh, Research Institute uh, for providing the invaluable core support to ties that has enabled us to strengthen our ties across our center, our university, the MENA, UAE and MENA region, and around the globe uh, in pursuit of Sustainable Development Goal 4 and other efforts to support children in their futures. We are extremely grateful and we are uh, Thank you for your attention, and we're going to now turn to questions and answers. Okay. Um, Hayan and Lindsay have been uh, scanning. I, I tried to answer a few of the questions uh, already. They've been answered. Um, please do enter your, your questions in there. Uh, Lindsay, have, have you identified uh, an outstanding question that uh, you'd like us to address? Yeah, so I think Hayan is probably best suited to answer this question, but this question is about whether we found any specific SEL skills had a greater impact on learning outcomes and well-being. Yes, uh, we have, uh, we are continuing to actually working on understanding how the SEL skills works in relationship with the learning outcomes and well-being in the context for the population that we are working with. Uh, we don't assume that this will be the same as the Western research, uh, the evidence from the Western research. We recently have done a study on uh, the, with the, uh, the Syrian refugee student in Lebanon, um, and the, it 
tells us that it is the cognitive uh, skills, especially the working memory skills, that are uh, sens- actually sensitive to uh, that a lot of early uh, exposure to conflicts and violence uh, can be critical for academic learning. And so are the behavior regulation skills that are uh, being able to control your urges and behaviors in the context of uh, academic settings. So if expo- go ahead. I was just going to elaborate a little bit. So if exposure to mm-hmm. some of the risks associated with being a refugee really uh, hurt children's um, ability to hold information in short-term memory, for instance, the ability to remember what the beginning of a sentence was about when you get to the end of a sentence, when you're learning reading, uh, or behavioral regulation, where you, you just can't regulate yourself enough to pay attention. Hayan's uh, mm-hmm. describing risks affecting those processes and that those processes have a very powerful effect on ch- kids' ability to read and learn reading skills and math skills. And those are exactly why uh, Brain Games targets those processes. By a similar process, we also know that there are other features of risk that affect children's emotion regulation. And it looks like emotion regulation may have a stronger influence on social emotional outcomes and less on academic outcomes. And, and uh, working memory and those kinds of executive functions have a stronger influence on uh, academic outcomes and a little less on social emotional outcomes. If that is true, it means that if we want to target both academic learning and social emotional learning, we got a lot of work to do. Lynn, Hayan, have you identified a question that you think is uh, one we can answer now? Yes. It's a little, I need a little bit of time to think through how to answer this question. So I'm going to pose it to Larry. Uh, In terms of global and local history, in what ways would that be taught in school, as well as what sensitive topics should be talked uh, about? Uh, Sorry, it just moved away. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> that was my <laughs> uh, let me just find a question again yeah uh, talked uh, talked about towards refugee of war per se so what kind of sensitive uh, topics can be taught uh, for the refugee children and how do we think uh, the, how do we think refugees emotionally cope with the information and what information should be taught this is a, an enormously important question in mm-hmm. our opinion. And sadly, uh, we have relatively little uh, to say about it through our own research. Um, mm-hmm. There is evidence that some forms of school curricula reinforce bias and increase the probability of intergroup conflict. And mm-hmm. some topics uh, inhibit bias and reduce the probability of intergroup conflict. There is a literature on the content of textbooks, for instance, Mm -hmm. that is related to that. Um, And it's a very important topic. Uh, We are uh, attempt to be uh, very respectful of what uh, country curricula 
and IRC years of practice lead to their notions about how they want to be changing uh, uh, practices. So we as a research center do not create programs or interventions. We help uh, NGOs and governments think more clearly about what, whether it works or not and, and for what purposes. So, uh, um, but hi, Honor Lindsay, do you have any additional things to, to in response to that question now that Hayan made me answer it first? <laughs> yes. So um, there is two different layers of this. The first is the topic itself, the sensitive political and social cultural uh, issues that uh, we uh, that needs to be dealt with a lot of care and um, sensitivity to that, uh, especially in a context in a whose community working with uh, refugee children from another country. Uh, there's another layer, to, uh, it, uh, which is the social emotional skills that we are trying to promote. So one, one of the programs that we implemented is mindfulness program. Um, and there was actually a lot of concerns around whether that uh, making the kids to reflect on their emotions and experience may have a negative impact on their uh, outcomes, especially for the children who are have experienced uh, trauma and war uh, conflict and so on. Um, at least from what we can say from evidence from the two uh, regions, from uh, Niger and from Lebanon, we haven't seen uh, very negative impacts of those programs. Uh, we actually kept it to a more body uh, and emotion regulation that is more directly uh, geared towards the being in the current state rather than thinking about their memories or past or traumas and so on. Um, and it actually seemed to have some promising signs. So, uh, but uh, that's just to say, uh, we need to think about how and what type of skills that, that we want to focus on improving uh, children to learn in this context. Liz. And last thing is that, you know, we are classifying some of these as promising or, you know, potential warning signs. But the truth is that we don't really know what's adaptive in these contexts for, for refugees yet. So um, like Hayan was saying, uh, being more aware or more willing to say that you're sad or that you're uh, angry, it, it, it looks on a measure like you've gotten angrier, but that might not actually be the case. It might be you're more aware of, of that feeling than you were before. And so, um, so we're really wading through a lot of this in, in real time is the is sort of other thing that to point out. And, and, and it's why uh, researchers in this area will stay busy for a long time. Let me, let me briefly respond to two types of questions. One question is, can you get copies of the um, slides? Will there be a, a recording available? Uh, and my understanding is that in the chat, uh, NYU Abu Dhabi has described that the webinar is being recorded and it'll be posted on a YouTube channel and you can uh, uh, go to a certain place. So look at the chat function for uh, information about how to access the, materi access the material later. A second question has to do was raised a number of times has to do with our research methods and two types of methods. 
most of what we described uh, it comes from randomized field experiments where we, we uh, ethically and sensitively in collaboration with communities and governments decide to roll out services uh, over random different start points as, as an example. So everybody will eventually get the, the service but some uh, children and schools get it earlier than others. And so you can compare the ones who randomly got it earlier to the ones who randomly got it later. So, uh, uh, but field experiments are very challenging to run in a, in, a, in a good way, in a sensitive way, and in a rigorous way. We could talk all day about that. The second has to do with how do you measure the processes and outcomes? And we have an entire initiative led by our colleague, Carly, Tubbs Dolan and her colleague Roxanne Kairos who, uh, on, on developing measures and metrics to, to, to do this kind of work. So, um, but in general, we try to use reliable, valid, and culturally pre-tested and adapted measures of concepts that seem to be emerging from the broader scientific literature. As has been mentioned by my colleagues twice, however, we should make no cultural assumptions about whether they are relevant or not. We should test and explore. And one of the things we've found is how important and valuable it would be to spend a year preparing for a study uh, um, or, or more to, to, to really understand local culture, to really try to have the measures reflected as fully as possible, uh, the, the cultural knowledge and and. and and values of an area. Uh, the, the way funds go in this area is humanitarian relief organizations and government donors want to get services to kids yesterday. And researchers want to prepare to study that tomorrow. <laughs> and that time conflict means that it's another part of the strategic partnership that needs to be worked through. Mm -hmm. um, just go ahead. May, I just may add to the questions about the tools for measuring SEL skills. Uh, there is actually really great resource at the INEE website. Uh, we have the measurement and matrix library uh, that's hosted by uh, INEE, and there is actually a great uh, webinar uh, showcasing a few of those measures. Uh, I believe this Thursday. So please uh, check that out as well. And INEE stands for the International Network on Education in Emergencies and is a great, uh, it, it's the leading cross-national organization of, of folks interested and committed to the field of education in emergencies. Mm -hmm. uh, we're nearly at the end of our time. Uh, hi, Honor, Lindsay, is there any, we will we'll attempt to, to answer all the other questions. Thank you for all your questions. Um, and, uh, the uh, um, I see that uh, our colleague Carly Tubbs Dolan has already sent the link to INEE. Thank you, Carly. Um, and uh, I see our colleague Jess Castlin encouraging people to be in touch on social media uh, about uh, the work of ties. Um, and uh, um, but uh, hi, Honor Lindsay. Any final um, question that you you think we can answer? Um. I think this runs till 11, if I'm not mistaken. No, I think it runs no? till okay. 10. Oh, is that correct? Uh, that's right. my understanding. 
Yeah. I think you're right. No, it's your understanding because it's true. So um, that's great. Okay. Now, now I can now now I can take a deep breath. Uh, uh, and so, other questions we want to address. Um. I uh, I can answer this question and uh, please, uh, Larry and Lindsay, uh, if you uh, feel free to follow up. Uh, Frida asks, uh, have there been any efforts to alter SEL curriculum formats for delivery in home settings as a response to COVID-19? Uh, so far, we have uh, not specifically for SEL programs yet. Uh, we are planning to uh, do so uh, in the future uh, work and we are also uh, we actually have for early childhood development uh, side uh, we have a media uh, the social emotional learning programs using the media working with the sesame workshop so maybe larry you can uh, introduce that a little bit but that could be more adaptive for covid settings yes um so the early childhood uh uh colleagues uh, at NYU Ties are working with early childhood colleagues at the International Rescue Committee in collaboration with Sesame Street and uh, to do two big sets of, of, of programs and evaluations of those programs, one in the Syrian refugee response region, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, and the other in uh, Bangladesh in Cox's Bazaar, the big refugee community of Rohingya, uh, who who migrated, for, been forced to migrate to to, to Bangladesh. Uh, in both of those, um, uh, the 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 work we described to you, ex the program work existed pre-pandemic. So we were still doing face-to-face -face programming and face-to-face -face research. Uh, our early childhood colleagues were in the middle of. Uh, um, beginning to roll out and conduct research when the pandemic hit. So they've had to powerfully pivot to, to distance or remote programming and distance or remote modes of evaluation. Now, the fact that Sesame Street was part of it uh, uh, um, made it partly already possible for broadcast media and, and certain kinds of electronic things to get Sesame Street programming that's been reshaped for the Syrian refugee response region uh, into the hands of people without face-to-face -face contact. But there is, for instance, uh, that's for kids three to five. For kids under two, there is a mother-child, uh, and if the, the father is a primary caretaker, a father-child home visitation program that used uh, uh, stimulation and, and support strategies in a face-to-face -face way. Our colleagues have had to totally reinvent that to become uh, a, a, a deliverable by phone. And, and, that's, and that's a very significant challenge. Um, did I answer the question as you posed it to me, Hayan? I think so. Um, okay, so I'm gonna uh, ask this question to Lindsay. Uh, this is a question by L L Rita. Uh, is the delivery of the teacher training collective in the sense of that uh, the teachers embedded in the local community are involved in the design of the training and are the ones delivering it? 
Uh, great question, Rita. So um, I think a thing to understand about Healing Classrooms is that it was a sort of grassroots movement at the beginning. They, uh, the people at IRC were hearing from teachers on the ground that uh, they needed a, a, a curriculum and an approach that was um, suitable for students in, in conflict-affected uh, areas. And uh, the, the program is contextualized within each of the programs. It is not... Uh, it is not co-constructed um, in each uh, in each area, and um, the local community members um, uh, are involved in the training, but often not the ones primarily delivering it. We do have um, we do have work. Uh, Ties has some work uh, in Lebanon where uh, we are working with the government and with the coaches. Um, co-facilitating and, and co-constructing some teacher professional development there. And, and we do believe that this is a great method for, for buy-in, for sustainability. Um, and uh, we can report in the future about the, about um, some of how that work is going, but, uh, but um, uh, because of, uh, because the approach is sort of already developed in some way for healing classrooms, um, it is contextualized and did come uh, at inception from teachers, but it is not, um, you know, wholly redeveloped for each context. That's terrific. Um, let me uh, address uh, questions by Pamela and by Yusuf. Pamela asks if uh, we get to work with home settings, parents, families, to improve school outcomes? And the answer is yes in early childhood and not no uh, uh, in, 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 in the school age years. Not because we don't think it's important, but because of resource constraints and logistic constraints. And, uh, and we, are, we, we follow the lead of IRC and, and, and government in, in their wisdom of what uh, should be designed and evaluated. We, we provide lots of input and feedback and constructive criticism and things like that, but it's not our decision. It's, it's the uh, government and NGOs decision. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, that would be another way. There's a variety of ways of thinking about how to strengthen the effects of these programs. We've, we've talked about two, which is learning better how, uh, what social emotional processes could be targeted more effectively to get to outcomes and ways to improve attendance. But uh, creating a positive echo chamber between home and school is a very promising approach to doing this. And simply increasing what's called in the, in the research literature, the dosage of a program. The, th these programs are run for anywhere between eight and 16 weeks, once or twice a year. And we're, develop we're devoting about 30 minutes uh, a week on, oh, excuse me, a day, three times a week uh, on these targeted things. Maybe if the dosage went up, maybe if the attendance went up, uh, that would be uh, a way of improving things. Um, Yosef asked the question, do you think the uh, program would have, uh, be as effective for young child who's abusive parents or orphan under hor horrible conditions? Um, this is an example of uh, two things. The first is there are, we're reporting average effects of these programs. 
And uh, once we said those average effects were true for boys and girls and for relatively younger and relatively older kids and one or two other uh, uh, comments like that. But how individual and family factors influence children's responses to an intervention is what we technically refer to as examining the heterogeneity of the impact, the variation in impact by characteristics. And that's another area that we're going to be looking at a lot more closely. In general, we find when things work, they work for everybody. When they don't work, they don't work for anybody. That, that's, that's the finding so far, but we haven't done that. I'll, I'll give one big example of an exception. We had no average effect on teacher well-being in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but that's because it had a positive impact on male teachers' well-being and a negative impact on female teachers' well-being. Now, uh, that surprised us. We thought, if anything, because the message of healing classrooms seemed a more uh, uh, nurturing, not to engage in gender stereotypes, uh, approach, um, that it might be received more uh, uh, fully by female teachers. Um, and uh, so if we had any hypotheses about gender differences, it would have been that. But <laughs> um, uh, in retrospect, when we realized that 75 or 80 percent of the teachers in our study were male and, and 20 or 25 percent were female, and that the teacher learning circles was the main mode of peer learning, we realized that we were putting women inadvertently in a minority position in that position in that and and maybe they experienced some gender dynamics that were uh, untoward now we don't know that but it but um it's the kind of thing that you discover and you need to try to figure out more of hi on and Lindsay, any uh uh additional comments on uh things from uh pamela or yusuf's questions um, no, just to add, uh, Pamela also asked whether we collected any information uh, from the parents. We do have parents' demographic information. Uh, we also have some of the teachers' perceptions of their own working environment. So we are in a process of understanding that better and potentially understand uh, uh, children's, uh, the impact on the children's outcomes by those factors, by their family uh, contacts and also the teachers. Teachers, um, but that is to be coming. Uh, that's also there's a similar uh, question by David in a way that it's addressing the heterogeneity of the impact, which is uh, could the implementation of the intervention therefore have different effects in the two classroom environment? Uh, we uh, so this is depending on uh, we definitely had some differences between how we implemented, who delivered it, who was the target of the implementation, and where things happened. For example, in Lebanon, the classrooms were in within the communities, so it's a community-based uh, programs. Um, in Niger, the afternoon school, uh, it does the 
with remedial program, it was informal program, but still happened uh, within a school after school pro- as a part of after school program and delivered by public schools. And there, that could have uh, affected the differences in impact, but it's just a very different context. So we are actually in the process of understanding what's the role of implementation by comparing the classrooms and teachers within uh, each of those uh, contexts and see whether uh, what are the best ways to implement uh, those findings. Lindsay, do you want to add anything to that? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to um, answer this question about opportunities for practice. So uh, Avi is asking about opportunities for practice and whether that might play a role in in the difference uh, between what we might have expected as the impact and what we saw. I'd like to preface this by saying this is purely my hypothesis for for what happened. I think... um, you know, we are counting on teachers to do so much in these environments. I'm a former classroom teacher. I'm a huge champion of teachers. And uh, and I think uh, one of my hypotheses is that uh, the teachers weren't able to extrapolate um, to... to um, communicate to the students that these were strategies that they could use uh, that were transferable, that were flexible, that they could integrate into their daily lives, um, which was specifically part of the activity. And it was something that they were taught in the training. Um, But, you know, in a lot of places, the teachers aren't used to sort of facilitating these kinds of discussions with students. And what we saw um, when we either did observations or in the videos that we have is that teachers really truncated this part of the um, of the of the activities, and and I think that that was uh, it, it. In what we see in the research is that students don't make that extrapolation on their own. They don't say, "Oh, you know, I did this uh, fun breathing activity with my teacher. Let me, you know, apply it on my own in this other context." Um, w- the more explicit teachers can be that this is a flexible and transferable tool, the more that students will integrate that in other places. So that's one of my um, hypotheses about why we didn't see as much of an impact. And like Larry said, dosage, I think, is another um, big uh, culprit as well, probably. That's great. Um, I see one other question that uh, I suggest we respond to. Then I'll give. Then I'm going to pose a, a brief question to both Lindsay and Hayan, and then we'll wrap it up. So, uh, first of all, we're humbled that uh, 120 of you began and 83 of you are still hanging in there. So, thank you so much for 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 being so engaged in 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 uh, and trying to understand what we've been doing here. The question I want to uh, uh, address is Shawnee's. Would it be possible to follow a cohort of students who are showing consistent attendance over two to three years and measure the improvement over a longer period of time? Mm-hmm. The long, ter- the intermediate and long term effects of the interventions are critical to try to understand. And mm-hmm. so, there, uh, uh, so your your basic idea, Shawnee, that we should. Uh, follow kids over time and see whether the improvement lasts over a longer period of time is spot on. The challenge in uh, these contexts is how mobile and transient some refugee populations are. 
Some aren't. There's some uh, uh, camps that have been there for a very long time, but there's been a lot of mobility. Uh, and, and, and the other part is um, uh, raising the resources it would take to follow kids over time. Uh, we know two things. When we followed the kids in the Congo from the first year to the second year, the positive effects faded out in the second year. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, there are examples, not many in the literature, of what are called sleeper effects, where you don't see an effect to begin with, but you see an effect a couple years later. Um, more common is you see an effect and it fades out over time. There's been a lot of work in early childhood trying to explain the persistence or fade out of intervention effects. And basically what uh, the, that uh, literature is beginning to suggest is that it's the quality of the new environments that kids are in that affect whether they maintain their uh, prior progress or whether they slide back. So in work, uh, we've been do- the center's been doing collaboratively with people in, in Ghana and other investigators. We've discovered that the effects of an early childhood program um, really differed depending on whether kids were going into high quality classrooms or clo- low quality classrooms in the early school age years. So uh, it, these are, and it's very common to see big changes over major developmental or school transitions. So the transition from early childhood to uh, primary school, the pr- transition from primary school to junior high school, all are periods of time where you could see different patterns of what we call continuity in a program effects or discontinuity in program effects. Um, Hi, Yonner, Lindsay, anything you want to add to uh, my response to Shawnee's question? Yeah, um, so actually in our studies in Lebanon and Niger, there are a group of students who were attending for both uh, years that we implemented the programs, not all of them. So we cannot do the experimental uh, studies on them, but we can actually follow some of the kids who are uh, enrolled in both years and attending at various level of atten- uh, their classes and see how uh, their it, the impact can be different for them. Um, so that would be actually our next, uh, really, uh, the research that we want to do with the data that we have. Lindsay? Um, I guess the last thing I want to say about this, just as a, um, as a, a, as a point of awareness is, um, you know, we had five different data cycles over the, over the course of those two years and were, um, through the work of our data team at the center have gotten a much faster uh, and more effective at at linking those students over time. But I want to be sort of transparent just for anybody who's in this line of work or thinking about this line of work, how time intensive it can be to link those students um, so that you can see their progress over two years um, when in environments where, um, you know, they're not accustomed to that sort of tracking. And I don't know if Hayan or Larry want to say anything about that, but we, um, 
over time have built an entire data team to do that sort of work um, because we know it's really important to develop, to um, to follow children when we can over that sort of trajectory. Um, but it, it, it has been uh, a, a bigger task than I think any of us really envisioned at the beginning. <laughs> I don't want to say anything other than you're, everybody's now been forewarned. <laughs> so, okay. Um, my last questions to Hayan and Lindsay, uh, uh, you know, uh, if, you could, if you could respond briefly, each of you, to the following question. What are you most looking forward to doing next uh, in this line of work? Uh, what, 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 is, what is the most uh, interesting or compelling uh, thing you want to follow up on or question you want to answer? What, what should our colleagues uh, who are still with us uh, look forward to hearing from you about in, in, in the not-too-distant future? I'll take that one first. So based on the hypothesis that I spoke about um, in terms of uh, in terms of really capacitating teachers with the foundational skills that they uh, would require to do this sort of work, um, I've been working on uh, a, a project um, in Lebanon and and uh, more more broadly with uh, the idea of um, having teachers, having uh, instructional leaders or teachers identify these core um, foundational practices for teachers and really creating um, a standardized way of talking and, and seeing these practices and having representations about what it looks like to do these things well and, and what that means for uh, teachers' experience of professional development and ideally for their ability to um, acquire these sorts of um, foundational practices to help them um, to help them enact any sort of curricular intervention um, that that sort of comes their way. So we were working specifically with instructional dialogue um, because I think it's a great vehicle for so many of the things that um, we ask teachers to do in the classroom. So that's something that um, I'm I've been working on that I will hopefully be have more work on in the future. And that will be terrific. Hi on. Um, I have two. <laughs> uh, so the first one is I am really uh, excited actually uh, to delve into the data we have and uh, also uh, to better understand how the child uh development works in this different context and how the social emotional learning looks like in the different context that we are uh, working with and uh, actually developing, uh, collaborating with the people uh, in the ground, uh, the teachers and students to better understand what is actually really helpful and what they need in terms of social emotional development to uh, build a program and practices that are more uh, contextually grounded is one of my uh, 
next steps that I'm really focusing on. Uh, the another one is also similar to Lindsay, focusing on teachers. Uh, teachers are often uh, forgotten in the chain of delivery. Uh, we they are we are often uh, really focusing on the child, and the teachers themselves go through a lot of adversities working in this context as well. So uh, we are also working on a program uh, that is focused on providing mental health uh, services and mental health support for the teachers in conflict affected uh, context for them to be better uh, be able to better cope with their stress and better uh, deliver the services that we ask them to deliver uh, with the better skills and uh, mental health uh, to do so so those are two areas that I'm really excited about that's terrific and I will uh mention one area for myself and one area for the center. The area for myself is uh, I'm going to keep plugging away at this. How do we improve kids' social, emotional, and mental health outcomes? We mentioned that in, in, the, in the presentation, but I, I'm a double bottom line guy. Schools can't just advance kids' academic learning without advancing their social, emotional, uh, and mental health uh, uh, well-being as well, and vice versa. And so um, kids are whole people and, and we need to do everything we can to address their multiple uh, learning uh, outcomes. Uh, at a broader level, I'm looking forward to continuing to work on how university-based research centers can develop effective strategic partnerships with uh, uh, NGOs and, and um, government and and in, in collaboration with donors and in collaboration with communities. The whole process of doing this kind of engaged, scientifically rigorous and informed, but deeply practical and culturally engaged research, that process is a, is a, a, and challenges are, are big uh, to undertake. I can't think of a university that has more to offer than uh, at NYU in, in the sense that it's committed to being a global network university. And I'm also sure that if only NYU does it, we will fail as a, a, a society to grapple with what Hayan mentioned earlier in the UNHCR report is our collective responsibility, our truly global collective responsibility to change children's uh, chances who are uh, uh, refugees and looking for an education. When we talk to parents, uh, uh, they, the most important thing they think of for their family moving beyond their refugee status is the education of their children. It is top of mind for parents and therefore an urgent uh, global concern. Uh, we thank you again. We thank all our partners and, and strategic partners and collaborators. Uh, thank you for your full attention. Uh, remember that you can uh, learn more uh, uh, about this and get the materials as was indicated in the chat. And we hope to be back in a year or three uh, with more information to share uh, if, if you so wish. Thanks and good day. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.